HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hey, what's up? This is John Norris, and you're listening to the Heritage Radio Network. All right. Once again, it's Thursday, one o'clock, and you have tuned in to the Heritage Radio Network. We are coming to you live from the back of Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn on this kind of hazy day. You are listening to the Farm Report, and I am your host, Aaron Fairbanks. And today we are on the line with Mercha King of the Federation of Southern Cooperatives. Mercha is the Pigford Case Coordinator. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me on, Aaron. Uh, it's uh, exciting to um, get a chance to explore um, the Pigford case, and I would love to kind of start out, I guess, really at, at the beginning, um, but before we tuck into the actual case, maybe you can give us um, a little bit of background on the Federation of, of Southern Cooperatives and what exactly that organization is. Well, the Federation um, of Southern Cooperatives is a multi-state nonprofit organization that started back in 67, I want to believe. Um, and what, how we started, we started out of the Civil Rights Movement. The uh, Selma marches actually is what birthed the organization. The march between Selma and Montgomery, that path um, allowed the, what allowed the, the marches to march in that famous march where the black farmers that owned land across alongside that highway, and they were able to house uh, the civil rights activists on their way to Montgomery from Selma. Now, the Federation was born off of that. There's a saying here that the, the organization was founded from the blood that was spilled on the Pettus Bridge, of course. That's Governor Wallace of Alabama at that time had ordered thousands of, of uh, Alabama state troopers to sort of, as in his words, to protect the marchers, but there was a lot of demonstrations, there were a lot of beatings, a lot of blood spilled, so that's what the Federation, that's how the Federation was spawned. And now we are in the states of South Carolina, Georgia, Florida, Alabama, Mississippi, and Louisiana. And I, my, my role in the Federation is the, the Pickford case coordinator, and I sort of coordinate all of these states, of course, with high 
uh, black agrarian population in those states, and I coordinate individuals and community groups to sort of identify the eligible claimants for this lawsuit. The Federation does a lot of things um, in rural development and cooperative farming as well, but the, the pig ferry case is what we're focused on now, what I'm focused on. So let so let's jump right in now. the The Pigford case is is a class action lawsuit that was brought against the U.S. Uh, the USDA. Um, maybe you can take us back to the beginning because originally it was it was two different claimants, correct? There was Pigford and Brewington, and those got merged. And so maybe you can tell us who they are, and then who Glickman was. The um, sure uh, in, in nineteen ninety seven in nineteen ninety eight there were. Two class actions lawsuit, like you said, one was entitled Pickford v. Glickman, the other was was uh, entitled Brewington v. Glickman. These were filed on behalf of groups of African American farmers, and what these lawsuits had asserted was that the United States Department of Agriculture has systematically discriminated against African American farmers on the basis of race, okay, which violates the Fifth Amendment to the United States Constitution, the Equal Credit Opportunity Act, and so on and so forth. And after the Pickford and uh, Brewington cases were consolidated, as you alluded to, they were settled in 1999, which became the largest civil rights settlement in history against the government. The terms of the settlement um, are outlined in the consent decree, which was issued April 14, 1999. And that stated that eligible claimants were required to file their claims uh, with the case administrator by October 12, 1999. So October 12, 1999 was the first deadline. Of course, a lot of people didn't hear about it. Um, hurricanes uh, were in jail. People had died off. The consent decree also stated that claimants who could show extraordinary circumstances for missing this October 12 deadline could file late. And that deadline was set for September 15, 2000. So you have the original deadline for October 12, 1999, which a lot of claimants did not meet. The consent decree furthered that deadline to 2000, September 15th of 2000. Now, approximately 22,000 or so claimants have filed claims before that October 12, 1999 deadline. But there were 61,000 additional individuals who requested permission after that original deadline. So that's how you get, you know, they have their term late filers because they filed after that cutoff date. So I want to I want to talk into a little bit of, uh, about those late farmers and some of the issue, issues that are still emerging around them. But uh, before we kind of proceed, you know, the unit. So the United States Department of Agriculture, the USDA, it, it's a federal executive department. It's responsible for developing and executing uh, U.S. federal government policies on farming, agriculture, and food. Um, you know, it's its aim, you know, it's charged to meet the needs of farmers and ranchers and help promote agricultural trade and production. So what what exactly was it, it that that they were doing? Like, what did the discrimination look like? Were there particular programs or, or policies that black farmers were being excluded from or or how did it how did it look on the ground? Like, what were the, the things that um and is, is there a variety, or was it around a specific um, type of activity that the discrimination occurred? Well, that's a great question. The USDA, um, as you said, is, are responsible for exactly what you said, but also 
what they, where you can look at, you can view the USDA as sort of a lender of last resort. I mean, through its farm loan programs, that the USDA tends to function as a lender of last resort, as the only credit alternative for many farmers and ranchers. And, of course, I don't need to explain the importance of having access to timely credit in adequate amounts and at fair terms. Virtually every producer uses short-term operating credit, you know, to purchase production inputs, seed, fertilizers, for example, are bought, in, you know, typically bought in the spring on credit, and the debt is repaid after the harvest in the fall. So you would have these black farmers who could not obtain credit anywhere else go to the USDA as a lender of last resort, and they are supposed to, you know, issue them loans and help with loan reconstruction, all sorts of services that the USDA offers. But between 1981 and 1996, and the reason why those two dates were passed, the significance of those dates is 1981 was when Reagan was leaving office. And when before Reagan left office, one of the things that he did was he terminated the Office of Civil Rights for the USDA. So the Office of Civil Rights responsible for hearing discrimination claims and all sorts of other claims was non-existent until 1996. So you have a period from 1981 to 1996 that in U.S.D. office, literally, there were just stacks of boxes and boxes and boxes of complaints and discrimination from across the country that no one even touched. A lot of it was thrown away, some of it was burned, and a lot of it just stayed in the closet. So, in 1996, of course, the Clinton administration came and President Clinton at the time reinstated the Office of Civil Rights. So that's why this case that we are talking about is covering the years from 1981 to 1996. You know, that's, that's not to say that there wasn't discrimination going on before 1981 or after 1996, but there was definitely a period there where there was just no Office of Civil Rights at all. There, yeah, so there was no recourse. And, you know, it's interesting, you know, looking at a lot of the the different ag policies that that Reagan implemented i mean that's around the same time you see the huge explosion of um hunger relief organization as as a response to incredible funding accounts and i think that's like one of the issues i would love to uh, tuck tuck into a little bit more on the show is just how those really broad um, policy changes have these on-the-ground impacts, and I, I think the case really highlights um, highlights some of those. So, the there was essentially no no recourse for someone who felt like they had experienced discrimination. So, um, I, I, what I'm hearing from you is things kind of came to a head. You have these two separate plaintiffs who um, kind of filed suit, and then how did it, tra- it transition from that into a, a lawsuit? Was there a kind of groundswell of um, other farmers, or was there an organization that stepped in and said, this is this is bigger than, than these two groups, and, and we need to kind of look at uh, these this, this discrimination at a more systemic level? Right, and that was the Federation's role. Okay. That's exactly what the Federation stepped in and and help actually file the first lawsuit, uh, which was Pickford v. Glickman. Pickford is a North Carolina farmer who sort of was the, the staple person for the entire um, class of African-American farmers. Um, the Federation was before my time, but the Federation in 1996 is the one who requested from the USDA these files, you know, these 
these complaints, these stacks of complaints that were just collecting dust. And, you know, we were responsible for uh, preparing Mr. Pickford to challenge the uh, USDA on discrimination grounds. And, of course, we are very organized um, in terms of how we, in each state, of, of how we keep records of farmers and uh, they complain to us, and we keep all those records. So we're the ones who really sort of, you know, put this on a national scale, and not just for farmers in North Carolina, but farmers in all the agrarian communities throughout the country. And sort of ballooned from there, and we, we were just we were successful in the Pickford v. Clifton case. Okay. And so I'm, I'm going to have to I ask you to just speak up a touch because you're kind of okay. fading out. I'm sorry. sorry. No, that's okay. Yeah. i just um, getting a little nod from someone out in the live listening area that they're having some trouble. Um, so when, uh, when, the, when the case transitioned from a single plaintiff to a class action lawsuit, kind of how did other, you know, you said that there was this open period where other farmers could um, petition to become part of the lawsuit. So can you talk a little bit about what, what was kind of the burden of proof on them? I mean, is there a form they filled out? Did they ha- how did they show that they kind of merited inclusion in the suit? Well... The burden of proof is different from Pickford 1 to Pickford 2, which we are in Pickford 2 right now. But Pickford 1, you sort of had to, um, the, the main uh, burden of proof came when you had to find a similarly situated white farmer who applied for the same loan or non-loan benefits, whatever it is that you applied for, and they were denied. That's That was a, a hard burden to to meet because the USDA, of course, did not keep detailed records of race, meaning this loan application that is on their desk, we cannot tell if it was a, you know, a person of color or, or a, a person, you know, a white person who applied for a loan or um, a non-loan benefit. So the burden was really, really tough to meet and pick for one. And also what compounded that problem was the fact that the word was not getting out. It was not spreading as fast as uh, we had anticipated, which is why we petitioned the judge to sort of extend the deadline, which he did for about almost about 11 months. But even that was not enough because there were 61,000 late filers who were found to have uh, demonstrated the required quote-unquote, extraordinary circumstances for receiving extra time to file their claims. So in order to make room for the 61,000, the deadline had to be pushed further into the future, into 2008. So you have a period from the original deadline from October 12, 1999 to 2008, where farmers could have entered and sort of, you know, become part of the lawsuit. And is that time period and volume of um, additional kind of plaintiffs, is that normal for a class action lawsuit? I mean, you know, here you have the, you know, your original, you know, Pickford, your original, who originally filed now, you know, almost over 20 years ago. And, you know, the case has been active um, through this, this period. So I guess I'm curious, one, yeah, is, is this kind of like a normal time frame for a ca- class action lawsuit? And 
two, where is the money coming to fund this outreach and education and, and ability to kind of include more people in the, in the suit? Well, to answer your first question, this is the 20-year effort, and typically class actions don't last this long. They last for several years, but not for 20 years. Of course, this is, this is a special case because you have, um, because of the rural areas, because of the level of education of most of the claimants, it's really, really difficult to sort of explain these these hard legal rules and legal guidelines to. So that also factored into the time. And also, like I said before, the, the lack of the word spreading, because not, I mean, even to this day, I'm working on this every day, and I'm still getting a few phone calls of people who have thought that this was sort of, you know, fantasy, uh, a joke, or maybe this is something that's not real. There's no... There, there's no substance to it as far as they're concerned. And I have to go back to the beginning and explain the whole case from the beginning and bring them up to speed. So the word still has not spread as much as we um, had hoped it would. Now, to answer your second question, the money came from Congress. It was an effort to push this through Congress, uh, as you can probably imagine. But they appropriated $1.125 billion for this. So there's there's a limited um, source of there's a limited amount of income that that has to be paid out now. That 1.125 billion dollars. Not only the claimants are getting paid from that, but the attorneys who are working on this, the judge, the claims administrator, uh, and so on and so forth, has to get paid out of this limited um, amount of money. And, but are they getting paid out of that money now, or they'll be re- that money will reimburse people who are who are who are filling those salaries currently? That's a great question. Um, they're separate. I, I believe that they that the attorneys are getting paid now, and other um, the claims administrator, of course, are getting paid now because they're the ones who are fielding calls every single day. They have records of all the eligible claimants, which is called the 5G list. Epic has that, and they're based in Oregon. So the only people who, as far as I know, who are not getting paid right away are the claimants themselves. And the reason for that is because the deadline to file is May 11th. Of this year, 2012. Yeah. yeah. Like, a, like a week or so, less than us. And... After that deadline, they, all of the applications and all the applicants are going to be sort of rounded up and going to be reviewed for credibility. And towards the end of this year and the beginning of next year is when the claimants themselves are going to be awarded. Wow. Well, we are going to move to a, a short break, and then we'll come back and kind of continue the story of um, the Pigford case. Today's program was brought to you by Fairway Market. Whether you are cooking for one or for a crowd, Fairway Market literally has everything you need for a fantastic meal. But if you don't feel like cooking, no worries. They cater. 
Check out fairwaymarket.com for more information. And be sure to check the new blog on our plate for weekly specials, health tips, and recipes. Okay, we're back. You are tuned in to the Farm Report, and I am your host, Erin Fairbanks. I'm on the line with Mercha King, uh, the Pigford Case Coordinator. Uh, he works through the Federation of Southern Cooperatives, and we are talking about the Pigford Case. Um, so before the break, you, you were kind of uh, taking us through some different aspects of um of, of the lawsuit, and and you had mentioned that the the deadline for filing is is this May, but you guys have petitioned for an additional extension. Is that correct? We have, and as far as we know, that petition was denied by Judge Freeman of the United States District Court in D.C. But we're not giving up. We have a network of, of Black farm groups across the organization who have signed on to this petition, and we're, we're constantly getting new groups. Uh, to sign on as well. So we're not going to give up on that. But right now, it does not look like it's going to happen. But that could change. We're hopeful. So so what that means, assuming that it doesn't change, is that as of May 12th, if you've filed, you're kind of in for consideration. It doesn't necessarily mean that you will be uh, awarded anything in the settlement, but you, you'll, your, your kind of claim will be considered and... And then somebody is making those decisions. Is there going to does the um, does the payout get dispersed kind of equally across groups, or will different uh, farmers receive different amounts? I mean, how do they how how do they, how does that work on the on the back end? Well, that's all. It's all contingent. It depends on how many people actually file in total. But there is um, a distinction made between the claimants themselves. Like I said before, there are claimants who are deemed late filers, and there are claimants who are deemed late, late filers. And of course, the late filers get uh, sort of uh, first position over the late, late filers in terms of the amount of the award, which could be the maximum is, I want to say, $50,000 cash with uh, 12000 Five hundred in tax relief. That twelve thousand five hundred does not. I mean, it's not paid to the to the claimant themselves, but it's actually paid directly to the IRS if they have some sort of um, tax debt in relation to this discrimination. And if it's less than twelve thousand five hundred, then the um, the amount that's not used will be reimbursed back to the the claimant. Back to the claimant. So, you know, I'm, I'm wondering, and I don't know if you can comment on this, but I, I do know the, the USDA, you know, they do uh, a census of agriculture every five years, and, and I believe it's only recently that they have started um, really looking at, at, at black farmers and breaking it out as a, a group of, of special interest and kind of looking through some of the, the statistics here. I mean, I think it is interesting that that black farming is uh, on 
on the rise. Um, you know, we're looking at the 2007 census, so that's the period between 2002 and 2007, and and it seems as though uh, black farm operators are growing at a at a, a faster rate um, than farms in general, but. One of the other interesting statistics I think is reflective of kind of the struggles in your outreach is that um, another thing that they measure is internet access on farms. And for black operated farms, uh, internet access is at 34% versus 57%, um, which I think is a reflection of, you know, connectivity. But I, I don't know, maybe is is reflecting something else. I don't know if you have a comment or, a, you know, an observation based on your your work and outreach as to why, you know, black farmers might be, you know, 20% lower than farmers on average um, with regards to internet access. That's a great issue. I want to talk about the first point, though, uh, about the numbers of black farmers on the rise. Now, those numbers are Misleading maybe is a strong word, but I have a re- let me let me just say the reason that's on my mind. You have a inherent sort of communal distrust of the government amongst black farmers for a lot of different reasons. Um, you know, a lot of land was was, was taken. Uh, you know, a lot of uh, intimidation through intimidation groups uh, throughout the South, chasing people off of land. And, Basically, you know, there's a lot of mistrust for for the government. So there wasn't, you know, people weren't <laughs> sort of lining up to fill out these these uh, the census forms. This, the census forms, sure. right? So you you have, you know, just for numbers' sake, maybe say two thousand people in in two thousand two uh, who probably filled out the census form. There were probably you know another two thousand who were just threw them in the trash. And you know, five years later, two thousand seven a small percentage of the ones that did not respond the first time, you know, respond the second time, but they were already farming and had been farming for generations. So the numbers, uh, I don't want to read into them too much, but you have to you have to factor in um, sort of that mistrust for the government and sort of, you know, being non-responsive to the government for, you know, you know they think they might get their land taken or something along those lines. That's what my personal experience has been. As far as the Internet, that's very, very true. Um, I do intake forms on, on each farmer family that I come in contact with, have been coming in contact with uh, over the past year, and I'm surprised at the fact that a lot of these individuals don't have email addresses of their own. Now, if they do have an email address, it's a grandchild or uh, a nephew or something like that. But I, I can't comment on why, you know, the disparity between, you know, black farmers' internet use or internet access versus other groups. I, that That is a problem. I, I'm not exactly sure, but there are a lot of different factors. Yeah, I mean, I think a reflection of, of, you know, rural characteristics across the board. I mean, even, you know, across all farm operators, the it's still at, you know, 50, just above 50%. Um, so... There has been, you know, through this case, a, a real recognition and an admission of discrimination um, by by the USDA. Um, you know, it's been, like I said, in, in process for over 20 years. What changes has it had on the ground? I mean, for black farmers today, I mean, is, 
is I'm, is discrimination still an issue? If so, how or, or how have things kind of shifted um, in the in the kind of twenty year history of the case? Do you think that it's um, made some steps forward and and kind of how, what's left to be done? I guess that's a huge question. So bite off whatever chunk you want to tackle there. <laughs> well, um, things have improved. Things have improved. The current Secretary of Agriculture. Uh, Vilsack. Yeah, Thomas. Yeah, he, um, when he, when Obama had, a, you know, appointed him in his position, he was like, wow, we have all of these discrimination claims. You have black farmers, you have Native American farmers, women farmers, Hispanic farmers. And he made a personal commitment to settle all of these discrimination claims. And I think he's he's been doing a pretty good job with that, and I, I I I believe and I see from the work that I do out in the field that discrimination has improved, it has gone down, but there's still a long, long way to go. But it definitely has improved from from where we were before uh, Mr. Vilsack took office. So that's just a testament to his tenure, actually. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it's interesting, you know, that's uh, one of those kind of insane jobs where on one hand he needs to have the concerns of, you know, small-scale uh, production farmers in all different parts of the country and at the same time be looking at, you know, large commodity farmers who are, you know, tr- growing crops to trade on the world market. It's really, um, it's really a broad charge for him and and i think that uh i know he's been particularly supportive too of uh you know new farmer development and, and supporting programs and policies that look to encourage people to to enter farming um so so yeah you know shout out <laughs> shout out to the secretary of ag um kind of you know we are we're getting to the end of our time here and i'm just wondering um maybe a, a, a final question um before we give a chance to, to talk about how if people are, are listening and feel like they may be eligible for this suit, they can find more info. Is there a, any similarity with regards of farming uh, a type across claimants? Is, is there a particular concentration in, uh, you know, vegetable production or grain production or, uh, you know, beef cattle or dairy or is it pretty much a, across the board? With it's, it runs the gamut. It's pretty much across the board. Is I mean, I mean, since we we're covering so many different regions, uh, different states, you know, it's just it's different crops. Um, it's just really uh, characteristic. I think by county, actually, that's what I've found out. It's, it's county, and that's one of the questions on the actual claim form and the. One of the questions asked the claimants, you know, how are your farming operations or the operations that you were hoping to go into consistent with other farmers in your area or in your county? So uh, it's more localized, I think, in terms of what crops are produced and, you know, if they have cattle or not. But really it runs the gamut from, you know, people with maybe, you know, from anywhere from five to 500 acre farm operations that's what I've ran into personally. Excellent. And if people want to learn more uh, about the your work or, or the lawsuit or if they feel um, as though they may be eligible, how can they um, get more information or reach out? Well, they could call me personally at my 1-800 number, and that's 
1-800-503-5678. Again, that's 1-800-503-5678. My name is Mercha King. And um, for those with Internet access that want you know, more details, there is a USDA-sponsored website, and it's www.blackfarmercase, all one word, dot com. Again, that's www.blackfarmercase, all one word, dot com. Wow, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today and, and giving us a little bit of insight um, onto this important and landmark case. I really appreciate you taking time. I know it's probably a, a busy uh, moment for you. So um, good luck with uh, the extension. Hope things maybe swing in the other direction and would love to have you come back on maybe next year and tell us how the, um, the case wrap-up went. So thanks again. Oh, no problem. Thank you for having me on. Take care. Right. Tune in next week at 1 o'clock for another episode of The Farm Report. for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening.